Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ellen, guess what I just found? Uh, a way to get a woman in the White House. No, not yet, but not for lack of trying. No, I found my box of old buttons from the 1970s. You know, the ones that say, wages for housework. Make policy, not coffee. And the very special, uppity women unite. We were so sassy. (laughs) I have all of those. But my favorite is pinned to the wall right next to the pussy hat photos from 2016. My favorite button says, sisterhood is powerful. Bright white with that defiant red clenched fist. Sisterhood is powerful. Now there's a blast from the past. That was the chant at the Women's Equality Day March in 1970, when we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the right to vote. And that slogan gave us the strength to change the world. It was coined by feminist writer Robin Morgan when the group called New York Radical Women was getting ready for a demonstration. Women were coming together in a new way, but they couldn't quite make their message sing. Unity is powerful? Nah. Togetherness is powerful? Uh Uh-uh. And then someone said, well, we're all sisters. And Robin said, sisterhood is powerful. Perfect. Until that second wave, in my own life, I always had the feeling that I was alone. All those things that happened were my personal problem. My actual sister, Jane, and I were the only mothers of preschool children in our offices. And I remember when I first went back to work after having Katie, many of the other reporters would ask, and who takes care of your child? And finally, one day I turned around and said, oh, I just leave her at home with the refrigerator open and it all works out. (laughs) At least you could laugh about it. Once I became part of the sisterhood, I realized how important my friendships with other women really were. We gave each other such vital support, everything from the right lipstick to the best career. And I realized that those best friend moments had so often been dismissed as girl stuff. And when we disagreed, oh, catfight. Society just didn't value girlfriends the way we do today. The modern women's movement, I think, gave us that first heady connection to other women who thought like we did. We found each other. But, (laughs) there's always a but when women start to get uppity. Not everyone was ready for liberation. On that same day of the 1970 March, my own newspaper ran two side-by-side photos in the afternoon. One was of Betty Friedan, who organized the march in the least flattering photo you could imagine. And the other was the perfectly coiffed founder of Happiness of Womanhood, which the paper said, espouses unliberated femininity. And the caption to those two photos, take your choice. 
no surprise at all that men and male editors dismissed our new movement, right? Just as they laughed at the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. But what sent a real pang to our hearts was realizing so many women opposed it, too. I remember reading Helen Andelin's book, Fascinating Womanhood, published the same year as The Feminine Mystique. It was a kind of self-help book for wives in the most traditional marriage. Even her voice was from another era. What a man wants you to admire are his masculine qualities. Physically, these qualities are his large build, his muscles, his deep voice, his beard, his large hands, anything which distinguishes him as part of the male sex. His sex function is masculine. Think more about him during the day and less about yourself. My favorite, or should I say my least favorite, was based on advice from the Total Woman workshops. Ready for this? When your husband gets home from work, open the door naked, swathed only in plastic wrap. This was decades before COVID. The plastic was not for social distancing. That's what this episode is about. Not wacko suggestions about how to win your man, but serious questions about why some women opposed equality, opposed their own liberties and their own rights, especially suffrage, and how the divisions created stresses and cracks within the movement over tactics and identity. Buttons aside, sisterhood is not always powerful, and women don't always speak with one voice. I'm Lynn Schur. I'm Ellen Goodman. And this is She Votes, a podcast about our battle for the ballot. Twixt you and me, I don't agree. We're going to show them who's right. Until the 20th century, the right to vote was not a priority for most American women. Most were simply indifferent. Many opposed it vocally and vehemently. And they opposed it with passion. You think women's opinions are split today? Go back a century or so to the 25 state anti-suffrage societies, to the 350,000 members who fought against women's right to vote. In your own so-called liberal state, Ellen, there was the Massachusetts Association opposed to the further extension of suffrage. And there was the Iowa Association opposed to women's suffrage and one in California, then Illinois, New York, Oregon, and on and on. They had their own books, brochures, flowers, and God help us, even songs. Although this jazzy contemporary version makes even the anti-suffrage rose sound acceptable. Suffrage rose, you're the flower that's best of all. You're better far that jungles are. We are going to prove it in the fall. So, who were these women? Susan Ware is a Harvard historian. They predominantly share the class and racial makeup of the suffrage movement. They tend to be middle class, often upper middle class women, and predominantly white. If there were ever such a thing as an African-American anti-suffragist, I've never heard of her. Frustrated leaders of the movement described anti-suffrage women this way, and I quote, they have dwelt since they were born in well-feathered nests 
and have never needed to do anything but open their soft beaks for the choicest little grubs to be dropped into them." Unquote. Why did they oppose their own rights? The anti-suffragists had a view that women should be bound by their families and their domestic responsibilities and that the man should be head of the household. A lot of this gets back to how people feel about traditional gender norms. And any time that you're going to potentially change them, it can be really scary to a lot of people. Can I ask you what the anti-suffragists were afraid of? I think people were very scared about this role reversal that somehow women would just say, once they had the vote, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to leave my domestic responsibilities behind. I think that maybe they saw it as kind of the gateway to even more changes in women's lives. The vote as a gateway drug. Now there's a twist. But yes, it came to symbolize all those changes in gender roles. Ellen, remember we talked about the cult of true womanhood, that 19th century biblical rewrite of family values, kind of like the moral majority of the 1990s. The right to vote, demanded by other women, shook that idea of separate spheres to the core. They felt threatened about having their lives upended, especially by other women, so they fought back. And as Susan Ware points out, the leaders did so very cleverly. What I'm always struck by is how politically savvy many of these women were. You know, they used the same tactics and strategies as the suffrage movement to make their point, even though their point was, don't give women the vote. For instance, suffragists often put out logical lists on why women should have the right to vote. Josephine Dodge, an anti-suffrage leader, turned that on its head with a pamphlet called Why We Oppose the Vote for Women. Among the bizarre logic, because the woman suffrage movement is a backward step in the progress of civilization. Because in some states, more voting women than voting men will place the government under petticoat rule. Petticoat rule. <laughs> Does anyone even remember petticoats? Journalism professor Terry Finneman from the University of Kansas has studied anti-suffragists. She says there was a lot of absurd fear-mongering about women in power. They emphasize how much of a burden it would be on women. We are busy enough taking care of the home and being a wife and mother, we do not need this extra burden that you are trying to put on us. Remember, these white, mostly married, middle-class anti-suffragists had the luxury of depending on their men. Their status came from their husband's standing in society. They wanted to protect their privileges. Were they valuable to the men in power who were opposed to suffrage? I think the anti-suffrage women, even if they hadn't been out mobilizing, just by their very existence, were incredibly important to the men in power and politicians because if a constituent comes you know, in to talk to a politician and says, well, I want you to support the vote, and the politician is able to say, well, not all women want the vote, 
many of my constituents that don't want the vote at all. And the fact that women were opposed to it was a very potent argument. They were a formidable enemy and helped fund the lobbying and leafleting against suffrage. The irony is astounding. One of the things that's most interesting about the anti-suffragists is they're saying that women should not be involved in political activity, but at the same time, they have no choice but to engage in it themselves in order to counter the political activity. They said they didn't want to be dragged into the muddy pool of politics, but they were benefiting from the freedom to speak out, a freedom gained by their opponents, the women fighting for their rights. The antis use what they learned. Terry Finneman described the subversive tactics of the early anti-suffragists. A counter movement to a social movement is when you have a group of people who are united, but more so in what they are against than what they are for. And that's important to know because that really informs how, how they work. And so they tend to be very reactionary. So they wait for the social movement to act first and then they react to it which therefore means they tend to have very negative strategies. The anti-suffragists denied power to other women that they claimed for themselves. All right, Ellen, do you want to say her name or should I? I'll do it. Phyllis Schlafly, the woman who will go down in history as the Pied Piper of the opponents to the Equal Rights Amendment. How can anybody listen to me talk about the anti-suffrage movement and not immediately think about Phyllis Schlafly and the Eagle Forum and the anti-ERA in the 70s and 80s? A lot of younger women likely only know Schlafly as the character played by Kate Blanchett in that <clears throat> uh, creative TV series, Mrs. America. They don't know her as the convenient front woman for all the enemies of the ERA, and the woman on speed dial for reporters looking to find or invent the other side. Just ask those of us who covered her. Yep. Remember how she deliberately began every speech thanking her husband for allowing her to come here? Then she'd say sarcastically, the Libbers hate it when I say this. She also had this annoying little habit. When you interviewed her, you'd turn on your tape recorder and she would turn on hers without ever defrosting that smile. Permafrost. So many parallels with the anti-suffrage leaders. She was the heir to their politics and the foremother to a generation of conservative women today. Like them, Schlafly saw her path to power by keeping other women down. Susan Ware sees the humor. I'm laughing because I'm thinking, thank God that the anti-suffrage movement didn't have a Phyllis Schlafly, because if they had, we might never have gotten the vote. Throw some bedding on a bunch of different mattresses, and sure, they all look alike, but peel away the layers, look at what's inside, and you'll see they aren't all created equal. That's what makes every purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. The purple grid sets the purple mattress apart from every other mattress. 
It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With more than 1,800 open-air channels designed to neutralize body heat, Purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. And this cutting-edge technology doesn't stop with the mattresses. Every Purple pillow is engineered with the grid for total head and neck support and absolute airflow, so you're always on the cool side of the pillow. Purple's proprietary technology has been innovating comfort for more than 15 years. Ellen, did you see they sent it these adorable little things with the, they're squishy and they show just how it works. And the, the little mattress one has a little pillow. You could use it for a doll mattress. It's, it's really impressive. <laughs> and, Lynn, it's in your favorite color, purple. Your whole life is purple. <laughs> True. You can try every Purple product risk-free with free shipping and returns. And Purple has financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the Purple Grid and you'll sleep like never before. Go to purple.com slash shevotes10 and use promo code shevotes10. For a limited time, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash shevotes10, promo code shevotes10, for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply. Next Wednesday is August 26th, the day we celebrate the passage of the 19th Amendment. On this historic centennial, we are pleased to share that we will be giving a teach-in on the women's suffrage movement at the 92nd Street Y, virtually, of course. We're inviting mothers, daughters, grandmothers, sisters, friends, and all to join us to celebrate the centennial and our ongoing work to protect the right to vote. Find the link in our episode notes to get your ticket or visit bit.ly slash 92Y suffrage. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash 92Y suffrage. Or just click on the link in our episode notes. We hope to see you there. You know, Lynn, when we embraced that slogan, Sisterhood is Powerful, and pinned on our buttons, we weren't talking about biology. We felt like part of a movement. Now let's look at the real sisterhood, DNA. Nowhere is the similarity and hostility between pro and anti-suffragists more surprising and more vivid than in the story of Maud and Annie Nathan, or as the press called them, the Fighting Nathan Sisters. Susan Ware tells the Nathan Sisters story in her book, Why They Marched. <laughs> sisterhood is powerful, but sisterhood is also fraught. And there's no better example than Maud and Annie Nathan. Any sense that all women, even in the same family, will feel the same way just doesn't, doesn't work, doesn't play out in real life. And they showed it. They showed us that in their real lives. 
Their sibling rivalry started at birth, five years apart in the 1860s. By the early 20th century, it became the subject of newspaper headlines, a striking example of arguments that splintered families as well as the suffrage movement. If you blindfolded someone and laid out their lives, I really don't think you'd be able to tell which was which. Maud ends up marrying fairly young to a man much older than she is. Maud threw herself into the suffrage cause after a devastating loss. Maud has a child who dies, and at that point she really is grieving and she's drawn into a world of progressive reform in New York City. She is drawn into the notion that the only way you'll ever get the reform is through the vote. Yes, and she, she sees, she identifies a connection between her reform agenda and the importance of women having the vote, both elite women like herself and working class women. So Maud was privileged, married, seeking new paths. She became a reformer, which led her to understand that male legislators would turn a deaf ear so long as women had no political status. Getting the right to vote was her next mission. Her younger sister, Annie, was equally well-off, equally married, equally restless, and equally unwilling to live a traditional life. She spoke her mind, and she had strong views. She just took it in a different direction. Annie went astray. <laughs> well, we say she went astray. She I wouldn't have went astray. <laughs> she wouldn't have said that. Um, and one of the things that she is most noted for is her commitment to higher education for women. And she very much wanted to go to college, but there was no college for women in New York at the time in the in the 1870s and 80s. So she took it upon herself, with the help of a few others, to found Barnard College in 1889. It's pretty amazing to think that a woman who founded one of the most esteemed women's colleges, still in existence today, would, within 10 years, come out against suffrage. Why did she come out against suffrage? I think that part of her, her role, that she, she saw herself as kind of an outlier, and she looked at some of the arguments that the women's suffrage movement was making and basically said, you know, this is bunk, um, that... Women, the women's suffrage movement is claiming that women are going to clean up prostitution and end wars and reform politics. And she said, this is not going to happen. These claims are unrealistic. So the very reason her sister wanted suffrage as a tool for social change was debunked by Annie. Annie was definitely part of the stream of misguided anti-feminism that runs right up to modern times. And like her spiritual offspring, Phyllis Schlafly, she enjoyed the limelight. Annie's stance bewildered her sister. Maud Nathan noted that Annie had not only founded a college for women, she also supported other causes for the advancement of women. And she was one of the first women in New York to ride a bicycle. Lynn. Riding a bicycle in those days was considered very unseemly. 
Oh, such a modern woman. She set her own path, but she didn't support suffrage. The conflicts among women during suffrage were not just between pros and antis or squabbling sisters in a family. Conflicts also arose among the suffrage sisters, women on the same side of the campaign. In the last decade before the amendment was passed, deep divisions arose over tactics and strategies, and huge conflicts were created among women pursuing the same goal. Many in the younger generation, led by Alice Paul, then in her 20s, promoted a more militant approach, including the first demonstrations in front of the White House and defiant actions that landed them in jail. Author Elaine Weiss. What happens is that third generation of suffragists, the younger generation, emerges and says, we're tired of waiting. We're sick of asking and pleading and being polite. We're willing to be disruptive. And Alice Paul breaks away from the mainstream, more conservative suffragists. Alice Paul founded the National Woman's Party. Many in the mostly older generation stuck with the National American Woman's Suffrage Party, which continued to work for incremental change through the usual legislative routes. Now, they're not conservative at all, but they are not willing to break the law. And so you see a split in the movement. We talked in our last episode about tense conflicts over race and gender during the bitter debate around the 15th Amendment. The issue of race would get even uglier in the 20th century as the campaign began to enlist Southern white women in the suffrage fight. The final decades of the suffrage movement coincided with a hideous era in the South. Jim Crow laws, lynching, and the terrorism that went with upholding white supremacy. It was as toxic to the suffrage movement as it was to the entire nation. If women voted, one South Carolina senator warned the influx of black women would assert, quote, the rights of race, end quote. Some white suffragists tried to appease these opponents. They went so far as to say that the white woman's vote would nullify that of blacks to maintain white supremacy. It was racist and poisonous. Keep in mind, many black women were equally committed to suffrage. They went to conventions, spoke on the hustings with or without their white sisters. But it was rarely just about the vote. More often, African-American women were mobilizing and organizing for civil and political rights on a separate parallel track. Those paths collided in a dramatic moment in Washington, D.C. in 1913. A huge parade was planned for the eve of Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Some 5,000 pro-suffrage women came from across the country to embarrass the incoming president who still opposed suffrage. Both black and white women showed up from a number of states, eager to take their place in this massive public demonstration for equal rights. It was meant to showcase the power of sisterhood. But once again... The sisters weren't entirely united. One of the members of the important Illinois delegation was Ida B. Wells, a noted African-American journalist who had at great personal risk made lynchings in the South a national cause. After moving to Illinois, she continued that campaign and also became a leading suffragist. 
Paula Giddings wrote Ida B. Wells' biography. And Wells is, at this point, has just founded the first black women's suffrage organization in Chicago. And suddenly, word comes that the national organizers want to keep the contingents white, all white contingents because of what Southerners might think about it, if they're mixed, if there's, if they're interracial contingents. Some white members of the Illinois delegation accepted the ruling. Many others were stunned. Quote, if women don't stand by their principles, the parade will be a farce, said one. An emotional Ida B. Wells stood her ground. I was asked to march with other women of our state, and I intend to do so, or not take part in this parade at all. Many African-American women did march in the parade. A contingent from Howard University and other professional groups, members of several state delegations, including Illinois, what happened there ultimately affirmed, in a small way, the power of sisterhood and the resolve of Ida B. Wells. She sort of leaves the group. She's nowhere to be found when the contingent starts marching down Pennsylvania Avenue. But suddenly she appears out of the crowd and takes her place <laughs> in the middle of the Illinois contingent. The nicer part of the story, or the more optimistic part of the story, is that two white suffragists immediately go to her side. And these are suffragists who actually helped her organize the Alpha Suffrage Club as well, who, in support, to make sure that she will march unmolested uh, within the contingent. And there's a wonderful photograph of the three of them together. This is an example of horrid tensions, sometimes destructive, between white and black women, women fighting for the same rights. I think this story of the splintering and conflicts among women of different ideologies and loyalties is a pretty strong reminder that women are not one block, not even one voting block. Annie Nathing, the anti-suffrage sister in the early 1900s, wasn't all wrong. She said women would never vote as a single sex. We still vote along all kinds of identity lines, not just gender. We certainly learned that over the years, the split over the ERA, still not part of the Constitution, the split over the abortion issue when one anti-abortion group has the nerve to use Susan B. Anthony's name. We experienced it ourselves when Sarah Palin ran for vice president in 2008. She wasn't my sister. And how shocking and disheartening when more white women voted for Donald Trump than for Hillary Clinton. We don't all agree, but wow, when we do... Doesn't that really describe the battle for the ballot, even as it continues today? Yes, we have differences. But when women bonded and stood up for suffrage, when women in our time marched with pink pussy hats, when we began to create the woman's vote, it's all a reminder of what Susan B. Anthony understood. What a power women would be if they could all see eye to eye in their struggle for freedom. When sisterhood does become powerful, the potential can move mountains. And when the sisterhood acts, the media sit up and take notice. That's also part of the suffrage story, the press. 
how suffragists came together and learned to use the press to promote the cause. Next week on She Votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. This election year, learn the story of Isaiah Nixon, a young black man and father of six who faced the ultimate form of voter suppression. In 1948, Isaiah was gunned down outside his South Georgia farmhouse for exercising his right to vote, but his family and community pressed on. Decades later, the Peabody Award-winning podcast, Buried Truths, tells their story. Buried Truths is hosted by Hank Klebanoff, an award-winning journalist, author, and professor. In each season, Hank and his students investigate unresolved cases from the civil rights era. They examine hundreds of pages of FBI documents, pour over archival audio, medical records, NAACP reports, primary evidence, and more. And it's not a whodunit. Instead, Berry Truth focuses on understanding the powerful historical context of injustice, the why. As we exercise our right to vote this year, explore how the past informs the present by listening to Isaiah Nixon's story. It's on the first season of Berry Truths, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts.